On this episode of Pound the Table, we will be discussing the Fed selling their stock. It's Quad Witch Week, and we're honored to sit down with Brian Feraldi of The Motley Fool, one of the biggest names on FinTwit. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Pounding the Table. It's our 40th episode, and we are recording here on Saturday, 9-11, which marks the 20th anniversary of this tragic day in American history. Let's just take a quick moment of silence for those who we lost. All right, we're back. Bonjour, Tony. It is good to see you back, man. Everyone's wondering, did Tony leave stocks for the metaverse? We hear people calling you NFT Tony, or maybe that's just myself that named you that. But before we get into it, as a friend, how was your trip? Did you do anything fun? Oh, yeah, man. It was a blast. I went to New York, visited uh, one of my best friends, Andreas, and you know, too, a college roommate for a long time. And then I went to France and hung out with my girlfriend for a couple of weeks. And I haven't been on a vacation in like two years. So we did all the touristy things, traveled around. I practiced my native tongue a little bit more. And yeah, I'm happy to be back and back in the lab. I am NFT Tony, but I'm also Stocks Tony first and foremost, always. He's growing new legs, folks. So Let's take a quick rewind back to, to January, right? FinTwit was a blast, even in the first week of February. Of course, it's been a, a little bit choppy here. And obviously, September is coming up, typically a bad month for the markets. And we just got news from the Fed, right? By hawkish Kaplan said the ethics concern with them, they're going to have to start selling their stock. So my question for you is, are, are they pulling a Pelosi? Like, do we need to take this as a huge alarm bell that we should probably be trimming? Because feels like things are getting a little buttery. So is it time to get ourselves out of these margarine calls that we're in? As much as I love like fate loves irony, I really, as soon as I saw that news, I started freaking out myself because Kaplan is always like the most hoggish person out here. He's always the one saying like, we're going to taper, we need to taper, like all these things. But him going as far as to say, like, I, I don't believe this ethics concern thing is real. I think that they're just like getting out ahead of tapering. And so we know it's coming. Once again, we said we don't know when exactly it's coming, but there's a December meeting coming up. And then there's obviously 2022 perception wise is going to be very different and people will be able to, you know, be okay with them starting to taper or two years after COVID. It'll be fine for the narrative. So I think it's coming up soon and they're just trying to get ahead of it. But it also causes those self-fulfilling prophecies because who else is not thinking that they're doing that ahead of tapering or ahead of them thinking the market's extended and there's going to be a crash or something coming because there's so much liquidity. But once again, once people think it's going the other way, people dive to that side. So I'm actually starting to get a little bearish here. Definitely been trading a lot more than long-term investing recently, just because I think the moves have been a little bit more sporadic. It's been two or three months of just market climbing a little bit every two or three days. And when we we're just talking to Sam, he's like, those are usually the situations where, you know, you see those quick moves to the downside as like puts are not really expensive, but then they get really, really quickly priced heavy, which I started seeing last week. And then of course we dove like 70 points from the high of last week on SPX. So I think that we'll probably start seeing some sort of like rounding top for a little while. And I just want to know if it's going to be a fate loves irony situation where a Kaplan sells and then we rip 20 more percent. I, I don't know the actual answer, but I'm definitely keeping it on watch. And it feels kind of like we're at this massive party, right? The music's blasting everyone's having a good time. And then, you know, you hear a cop siren and you're like, is that for us or is that not? Do we need to start like getting out of it? Like, for, for the retailer investors and myself, I'm always speaking on behalf of myself really here. Uh, is there anything we can do? I know you mentioned you're starting to, to get out of stuff. If people are in margin, is this now a time to start trimming and making sure you're not left holding the bag, essentially? Yeah, I, I would not at all be in margin right now in the slightest. Like, Think about how far the markets run. Like, The market doesn't really run more than 20%, 30% really max like, annually. And then just knowing that we're coming up to those deflationary measures, which like won't necessarily be horrible for the markets overall. It just will stunt growth in a lot of areas, especially like, you know, in growth names. And once again, how much of that's already been priced in? You've got a lot of growth names who are still down 40, 50, 60% from their highs. And the only ones that are succeeding right now that are really still running are the ones that have the cash to continue going, whether or not it's cheap debt for them to continue growing, like the smaller names need. So I say like the ones that are the bigger like heads of the table, like obviously SE is at 350, like congrats founders. Square is at 265, like congrats founders. Like those things are going to be continuously doing well, in my opinion. But once again, if the market crashes, all the boats will float with the tide going in and all the boats will go down as the tide goes out. So like that's just the way it's going to work. And I would say obviously SC Square, those kind of names, Tesla will go down less than the other names. But 
that's just what we would think logically. I think that a lot of it's already been priced in. So we'll have to play it by ear because it is ambiguous. And I mean, if everything was running, like if Fiverr was 400 and not 180, then I would say Fiverr is going to crash way, way more. But Fiverr is already down like 50% from its highs. So, you know, is that already factoring in everything we're talking about now? I think we'll have to wait and see the initial reaction on the news. And I think you'll get a really good judge of where it's going to be going three, six months after that, after the first couple announcements of like how they're going to taper. But I know it's going to be slow. So I'm not as worried as, you know, I, I was before. And I think like maybe what we'll see here is a lot of, you know, those, those massive companies that we talk, obviously Google's not going to go away. Apple's not going to go away. Right. But some of these like smaller caps, do you think they have a chance of potentially going under where it's like, you know, some of these bigger companies, it's just prime for acquisition. You'll see, you think you'll see a lot of that kind of Q4, Q1 even. Yeah. I, I think, you know, we saw it happen a lot in the last three to six months. And that's because things like Etsy and Zoom, like, yeah, sure. Zoom was like 500 plus. It went down to the 300s. That's, I mean, that's fine. Think about like the actual market cap and money they have behind that. That's why they were able to buy 5N. And that's why Square bought Afterpay and Etsy bought Depop and all these companies that are buying and, and doing strategic acquisitions, they're not doing it because they're in a bad financial situation. They're doing it because they're in a good financial situation. So those will continue to succeed and relatively to whatever conditions we're in versus the companies that are struggling just to get through every quarter, whether they're losing or burning too much cash and such. And I, and I actually think that a lot of the like, SPACs we've met, like SMFR, like I think some stuff like that, they have an abundance of cash, right? So things will get hit a lot that have to continuously get debt and need to get money every week or every month or every quarter, or whatever, to continue their business operations versus some of these deals that have already 400, 500 million in cash, which is 20, 25% of their market cap. I don't think they'll be hit as hard because they don't need to raise more cash. They'll do, they'll, they are in a position to do what Zoom and Etsy and those strategic acquisitions already have done just on a much smaller scale. So do fundamentals start to play like a much bigger role here? Kind of as, as we get to, if, if the market does start to crash or is the people going to start to run towards companies that have proven that they have money, they can, they can make money versus companies that have these ADX, you know, right. what the revenues are. I, it, this it's like, this is like a two sided answer. It's hard because like, if you look at stuff like CrowdStrike or you look at like net, like obviously these things are crazy valuations, but like people, and, in, and more importantly than Fintwit, obviously, is the institutions and the big money. They don't care. That's the horses that they're backing because they know in five, 10 years, whatever, they'll be around. They will be doing the, the square you know, strategic acquisitions and, and it'll just cycle that way. Every company is the same. It's just a brand. So it'll end up being that way and they choose to back those brands. Like, and that, that, that's what I'm really, you know, realizing all throughout this year is what they've been continuing, continuously doing, like C-Limited is doing raises. They just did, they did a $4 billion raise not too long ago. They're doing, they just did a $6 billion raise. Um, and we don't know, I don't think we know the shelf price yet of that, but either way, those are going to be used for strategic things. And you're not doing that unless you have the in, like interest and the financial situation that's good to be able to do that. So people will continuously look at multiples and stuff. I still think PE is such a stupid multiple just because like there's a lot of other things right now, like like Amazon's PE was crap for 10 years while it went a hundred bags, you know, like that's something to really understand and not just say like, I'm a PE investor because you might as well just buy S&P. So that's what I'm looking for. I know that that'll be continuously a trend. They'll continue to buy the companies that are more and more proven as PEs come down because even though it's wrong, stupidity is rampant and we'll just continue to see that, I think. I was just laughing because uh, we, we just talked about this on this interview that's coming up here shortly, but we won't uh, steal the thunder from Brian. Uh, it is also going to be quad witching week. So I know I think we talked about this on episode one or two, like early on, I had no idea what you're talking about. And about a year and a half later, I still barely know <laughs> what, what quad witching is. I, you know, so can you just refresh any pounders that have not heard of this before, what that is and, and what we should kind of take a look at with all these other factors playing a role right now? Absolutely. So yeah, I mean, quad witching, it's quadruple witching. So it's an easy way to think about it. Four things are happening and it happens four times a year. So that's the date where options of stock index futures stock index options, stock options, and single stock futures that only happen monthly, all, all of these things expire simultaneously. So like the indices have to roll to the next expiration to the next quarter. And what also happens is that this is like obviously right around at the end of the month of, of every quarter. 
of the, the last month of the quarter. So there is a lot of action that goes on and so there's flows coming in and then there's flows coming out, whatever, depending on like it's a mutual fund, pension fund, hedge funds, whatever the situation is. So those are the, the times where like trading is like harder, especially for options, like it's much, much harder. So you definitely want to like play light or like stay away completely, but you will probably find some opportunities. What's interesting too, is like, this is coming up at the time where people think something's happening at the December meeting for the fed. And, you know, there are a lot of small caps that are down. So are we going to get, you know, a second mini monster run this year as people who are lagging want to rip higher as they did last year? I mean, it's the craziest small cap season I've ever seen. I wonder if we're going to get that happening again. And so maybe you'll see some flows coming out of the bigger names and the flows start coming into the smaller names for people to rip their alpha into the end of the year. Oh, Avi, man. what are you, what are you doing? Oh, this is uh noon brew, man. It's uh one of my buddies started this company. It's like, it's way better than coffee. It's this oolong tea. It's like all natural energy helps you like manage stress, strengthen focus. I don't know. Whenever I drink coffee, I'd always feel like I'd get like really hyped super fast. And then like, I'd start to come down. And so I really love this. It's one of my buddy's company. He actually gave us a bunch of free samples to give away. So uh, you should check it out. Go to noonbrew.co slash pounders. So noonbrew.co backslash pounders. Uh, we'll put out a tweet and an email about it as well. But I actually genuinely like it. I always said this is an ad. We're going to be always very transparent, of course. Uh, but it's my buddy's company and it's actually really legit. And he's giving you guys free samples. So definitely check it out. I, I really enjoy it. Yeah, Avi, we're always going to do uh, those really, really like casual, like you'll, you don't know it's an ad until it adds over kind of situation, which I love, but I'll definitely have to try it out too. I just got back. So I got to see what's in my mailbox. Yeah, you got to try. It gives you like this natural energy. I absolutely love it. You got to put lemon in it. it. It makes it taste a lot better. As always, we said we'd never take on an ad that's something that we didn't really genuinely like. It's free sample. So it's pretty cool. Um, but we're super excited now, Tony. We're going to kick this over actually to Brian Feraldi. We brought him on here for an interview. So let's just flash over to this interview and we'll be back here quickly to wrap things up and tell people what to kind of keep an eye out here for next week. We are joined here by Dom Rinaldi and Brian Feraldi. Uh, that is a fantastic thing to say back to forth. You guys may be some long lost cousins here. Uh, Tony is out in the metaverse somewhere picking his next NFT. So we got Dom on my uh, sidekick here today. So Dom, I know you're super excited. Brian's someone that you've introduced me to over Twitter and uh, great follow. So uh, super excited to have him here, but I know you wanted to quickly introduce yeah. him yourself. Yeah, for sure. I look up to Brian. He's kind of like a role model for investing, like my older brother. Uh, I've been following The Motley Fool for now going on two and a half years individually investing, and Brian was one of the first analysts. Um, so Brian has over 199,000 followers on Twitter, and he's very good about his mission statement, too. You'll learn through his checklist uh, that he's very particular of having a short mission statement, and his is to uh, spread financial wellness. And he's done a great job. He's an analyst at, at Motley Fool, as well as a YouTube channel uh, starting out and very well known in the FinTwit universe. So Brian, thanks for, for joining us. Avi and Dominic, great to be here. Thanks for having me. So the, the first thing we want to cover today is Brian's story. Where did you start with investing? Uh, I know that before the Motley Fool, you had a history uh, before investing and kind of how did you end up at the Motley Fool moving forward? Uh, sure. So I graduated college in 2004. Uh, while I was a business major, we barely talked about the stock market like at all. In fact, it was only mentioned a few times, basically on accident in classes that I had. We never had like uh, a detailed, uh, detailed class where we went over what is a stock, why is it valued, uh, any of that. And again, I was a business major. We talked about accounting, <laughs> we talked about legal, we talked about that kind of stuff, nothing about the stock market. So I knew nothing uh, when, 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 I, when I graduated. Uh, after I graduated, my dad handed me a copy of the first personal finance slash investing book I'd ever read. Uh, at the time, it was very popular called Rich Dad, Poor Dad uh, by Robert uh, Kiyosaki. Um, I devoured it. It was the first time in my life that I'd ever read something that said, everyone's in business for themselves, buy assets with your income, you can become rich in, in one generation, uh, et cetera. All very common sense things. However, it was just the first time I was ever exposed to that. And I just immediately took to it. Like, I think I always had that mindset and ethos in me. And it was the first time that it kind of got unlocked. From there, 
I just started devouring any financial content that I could get my hands on, uh, books, audiobooks, uh, podcasts, uh, websites, et cetera. And this was still in the relatively early days of, of the internet. Uh, that led me to the Motley Fool's um, book at the time, which is called The Motley Fool Investment Guide. I gradually went from there to fool.com and started reading all of their, their free articles. I was buying and selling stocks uh, in 2004, 2005. I was not investing. I was just buying and selling stocks. My only goal was how do I make, how do I buy a stock that goes up 20% tomorrow? That was it. Like I had no knowledge of financial statements, business analysis, management, competitive advantage, nothing. Um, and I did terribly, just absolutely <laughs> terribly. Uh, I got my teeth kicked in plenty of, of times. But I gradually uh, increased my knowledge about investments. I gradually became a paying member of The Motley Fool. That just opened up a world of knowledge to me. And one of the things that The Motley Fool does really, really well is they have these private discussion boards where people can exchange ideas and analysis on companies. And I just spent hours every single day reading through there, and I found some uh, people on there that were just extremely generous uh, with their time and, and their teaching. And just purely by osmosis, over time, you just learn how to invest better and better. Awesome. So, and I just got I just got married. So this is a personal question. As, as you start the family and in a few years, I'll probably have some kids. Like, how do you balance, right? And, and find time to do all this DD. I don't know if you have children, you know, a wife or whatnot. But like, how, how do you balance just finding time to actually do this deep dives into companies. So I was lucky enough to get really interested in investing prior to being married, prior to having children, prior to having any of those real huge uh, time obligations. So I put in a lot of time in upfront. Uh, I am married. I do have uh, children um, and I've been blessed in my career to be um, uh, prior to working uh, with, with the Motley Fool, I had a job in sales. And one of the enormous benefits of being in a, in a sales role is I was in my car 30 to 35 hours per week. I mean, I was driving around nonstop. Some people use those 30, 30 to 35 hours to listen to Howard Stern. I used all of those hours to listen to podcasts, to listen to audiobooks, to listen to conference calls, uh, to basically educate myself. And that really afforded me a huge block of time where I was basically being paid to be at a university right. <laughs> in my car. Um, more, more recently, now that I, um, about six years ago, I transitioned to being a full-time uh, contractor for, for the Motley Fool. And I basically work seven days a week, but I say work in air quotes because I don't consider this work. I consider this right. like I, I was doing this for fun in my free mm -hmm. time before. And now it's just what I do full time. I'm sure your that's family crazy. appreciates appreciates that too as well, right? <laughs> yes, that's that's a constant thing. We've had to come up with some rules. For example, I'm not allowed to touch <laughs> the computer after 7 p.m. Uh, and, and, and things like that. Uh, but it's always a balancing act, but working from home and loving what you do, uh, those two things make it work. Oh, totally. And I have those same rules in my house as well. So very familiar with that. Yeah, Dom's not allowed to do spaces after. <laughs> yeah, hour. we actually have to do Twitter spaces. I have a curfew to, to adhere to, make sure uh, I have time with the kids and fam. Um, so could you walk our viewers through your investing philosophy and how it's changed since buying and, and trading and trying to make that quick 20% to now really being a more involved uh, long-term investor looking for quality businesses? Yeah, I've tried just about every strategy that you can possibly think of and failed at all of them. And that has really led me to be the investor that I am today. Uh, just observing the market, watching what works, watching what doesn't. I firmly believe that the best way to invest for the long term is to buy and hold the highest quality companies that you can find, period, full stop. Mm. That is both simple in explanation and really hard to do in, in real life. And believe me, I've tried really hard to make short-term investing work. Like I've tried to, to find companies that were going to go up quickly so that I could book a profit so that I could reinvest. Uh, in my opinion, that is not a game that I just, I, I'm good at uh, playing. That's not even something I try to do. And the funny thing is when you look at, at some of the best investments over the last 20 years, they're companies that we've heard of. Apple, Amazon, 
Netflix, right? These are companies that we use in our real lives. And if you just had the foresight 20 years ago, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, even five years ago to say, hey, that's a good business and buy it and hold it, you have done extraordinarily well. And I am now after trying to find um, the highest quality companies that, that, that I can find. I determine quality by taking them through an investing framework uh, that I've developed over geez, the last uh, 15 years or so. And my framework has been built on trial and error in my own investing uh, uh, life. And it's also been refined by sharing it publicly and have having a tremendous amount of feedback um, from other investors. But I now use this framework uh, to evaluate any potential investment that I come across. So I check the company's financials. I, I check the company's moat. I ask myself what the potential is. I think about the way that the customers interact with the company, how, how high quality the revenue is, what the management is, uh, how well the stock has performed on the market so far. And then I subtract out all the things that, have, that I've messed up uh, in the past, I check for, for example, customer concentration or industry disruption, or if there's an outside force that the company is successful uh, needs uh, to go well, or if it's growth by acquisition, or if it's high dilution, uh, et cetera. So this framework allows me to take any company that I come across, run it through it, and it spits out at the other end a quality score. Now, the score itself does it's that's not that valuable. Whether a company is like a 75 or a 79, that really doesn't matter uh, to me all that much. What really matters is it forces me to go through the same process with every single company. And mm -hmm. what you discover along the way is really, really where the value is. Do you ever do like a bear case? Like if you love a stock, do you, will you flip yourself and make, you know, try to take the, the bear stance on, on the same stock? So that's kind of what the, the, the end of my checklist is. That is a, a, a list of all the things that could go could go wrong or the really big uh, risks that that are out there that that mm. I that I come across I guarantee you that list is going to grow over time as I screw right. up and buy things that uh, that I that I shouldn't but going through that part of it is sort of a is sort of a bear case but I've also learned that um, investing is really an odds game what I'm mm. really trying to do with my checklist is increase my odds of being successful and decrease my odds of being unsuccessful. No checklist, no matter how fantastic it is, will ever be 100% uh, correct. So um, the bear case is always important to think about, but you can also, if you really focus on the bear case, you can talk yourself out of anything. Like every company, every great company sounds dumb when it's, when it's very early on. Uh, so right. I've since learned, uh, I protect myself from, from that risk by, by positioning the sizes appropriately in my portfolio. And you've stated publicly, sometimes there's great companies that score not so well on the checklist up front. Uh, one that particularly jumps out at me is Pinterest. And I, I believe you still hold Pinterest. Is that right? Yeah. When Pinterest first came public, I, I took it through my checklist. And I think it was like uh, just a rough scale. It's a zero to 100 point uh, scale. Anything over 80 is basically, why don't I own this category? Between 70 and 80 is like investable and below 70 is in my why bother uh, range. So that's just a rough scale, scale of it. When I first ran Pinterest through the, uh, through the checklist, I think it scored like a low 60 or something like that, mm -hmm. which was just in my why bother category. However, one flaw or one downside to my checklist is it unfortunately punishes newly public companies. Like that's just, mm -hmm. uh, I like to check out market history. I like to see how the company does versus analyst expectations, um, uh, et cetera. So there's a couple of things in there that punish newly public companies. When I first took Pinterest through, I think it scored like a low 60, which is normally in my why bother range. But qualitatively, it's my wife's favorite company. Like it is the website that she enjoys being on uh, the most. And I just knew for, for, for her that the brand name uh, Pinterest just was very, very attractive uh, to her. And I inferred, well, she can't be the only one that just right. loves being on, on Pinterest. Uh, so while it didn't score well initially, I still took a position. Now, my scores are dynamic. They do change over time. And as Pinterest was a public company for longer, the score actually improved. So it actually scores very well in my checklist uh, today. So that, that's just something else to keep in mind. Whenever I score something, it's like the score today but it can change because companies change over time. So quick questions. I, I, I came from a tech sales background. I've, I've been doing it for about 10 years. Dom as well, you know, he's in cybersecurity, but you know, it, it sounded like you came from a medical device background. So has that played a role? Cause like I, I'm more familiar inherently with tech stocks, right? So do you kind of, 
invest in more medical or, or technical stocks? Yeah, I uh, sheer luck out of college. I got involved with a startup uh, through just a uh, a family friend that that, that uh, uh, took me on in this uh, interesting uh, medical device uh, company. I didn't know anything about uh, the product, the company, or anything. It was just kind of like a first job. Sheer luck. Um, that company turned out to be ridiculously successful. Uh, it's, it's worth approximately uh, off the top of my head, somewhere around $20 billion um, uh, today. It's Good publicly choice. traded. Yeah, pu pu publicly <laughs> traded. Um, and working at that company, I got to see a company literally go from the R&D phase all the way through till $20 billion publicly traded uh, market wow. cap uh, company. And when I was working for this company, we had a revolutionary product that was unlike anything else that was on the market. And if you knew not that much about the market and you just saw the product and compared it to what existing, it's a no brainer. I mean, you, would, you wouldn't for a second consider the, the legacy product. So I was hired, I, I moved into sales to try and sell this product in the market. And I was like, this is gonna be easy. Like this is the, this is like a no brainer uh, choice. And you would not believe the resistance that we hit as a company trying to commercialize this product. Um, so many doctors and providers that we, that we came across did not want to change what they were doing. Oh. They were extremely uh, resistant to our technology. Even again, if you looked at it as, a, as a, an outsider, you'd be like, there's, there's no choice. Their, their product is the better one. So that taught me just how high the switching costs can be in, oh. in healthcare. The other thing that it taught me is uh, the, the company, um, it's called uh, Insulet. The ticker is P-O-O-D-D. -D. I vividly remember in 2005 when we, when we launched uh, the product, our CEO was up there and he said, you know, we have a three-year head start on, on the competitor. You can, we have a three-year lead before you'll see anything that competes directly uh, against this product. It's now 16 years later, and there's still not a direct competing product uh, on the market. And that's because just the nature of, of healthcare, there's a long regulatory approval process. There's the R&D you have to go through. There's the patents, there's launching it, there's getting healthcare support, there's reimbursement. So again, all of that kind of showed me firsthand just how durable a moat can be in healthcare if you build it properly. Now with investing in, in your history with working at a, at a healthcare company, you lean towards technology and healthcare stocks. Is that a fair assessment? I mean, as yes. far as your portfolio, you kind of stay in your area of expertise because you know it really well. Yeah, that, that's correct. So the two areas of the, that that um, I think are the, the best hunting ground for investment uh, ideas are technology and healthcare. Of course, those aren't the two exclusive ones, uh, but those are the categories where I think the economics uh, are the best, the long-term growth drivers are, are the best, and companies can really establish a unique position for themselves. So kind of transpiring now into bringing investment to our personal life, uh, we've heard you talk a lot about the FIRE movement, right? Financially independent, retire early. Um, what advice would you give towards new investors or even seasoned investors around working towards financial freedom and, and what's worked maybe for you personally? Yeah, again, getting back to that Robert Kiyosaki book that I read 20, almost 20 years ago now, uh, that was the first time in my life I ever heard of the concept of being financially independent or being uh, rich enough or wealthy enough that you are in control of your life. Like nobody can tell you what to do if you have enough money in the bank. And again, that's a concept. The first time I heard it was like, yep, that sounds, that <laughs> sounds exactly what, 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 uh, what I want. Now the fire movement has grown tremendously uh, over the last uh, 15, 15 years. And I previously thought that the uh, RE part of that was what I really wanted, retire early. <laughs> um, I have since essentially dismissed that outright. Um, I, I don't think anybody really wants to retire early. If you, if you're after retirement, that just means you don't like what you do on a, on, mm -hmm. on a daily basis. <laughs> I've never heard that. <laughs> um, if you really love what you do on, on, on a daily basis, or you love, um, your career, mm -hmm. retiring does not sound something that's all that appealing. I mean, the classic example there is Warren Buffett. 
He could have retired yeah. early, what, 60 years ago uh, at this point, but he's in his 90s and still tap dances to work because that's what he loves to do with his, uh, his time. So I'm a huge uh, proponent of the uh, financial independence part so you can choose whatever you want to do uh, with your time. But my big advice uh, to any listeners there is just, first off, learn about it, study people that have successfully done it, and then ask yourself, even if you don't want to, go towards uh, financial independence, even if like the idea of saving 50% of your income uh, just sounds completely unappealing to do, study the people that have done it. Because mm. I don't care who you are, or which stage you are in your life, you will learn something. You will learn something that, that those people do that you can apply to your life to just nudge your savings rate a little bit higher, to pay down some debt, to save a little bit more, have a little more cash in the bank. And those actions that you take will just dramatically improve uh, your financial life. And your financial life has a huge impact on the quality of your actual life. I definitely agree with that. Uh, can we just talk a little bit more about kind of your, your portfolio? I don't need to obviously go through all the stocks you're holding today, but, you know, as you start to analyze some of these stocks, like, do you have a limit where, you, you know, you have 10 or 20 at any time and then do you add to 21 or, or you push one out typically, you'll, you'll try to keep to that specific standard set? So I have a spreadsheet that I created for myself where, again, I've taken now hundreds of companies through that investing checklist process uh, that, 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 that I've gone to. Uh, and that's just by doing them literally one at a time. Uh, so mm -hmm. that's how I kind of got to where uh, it was. Uh, however, going through that process, sometimes after I'm done with that process, I would just immediately say, this stock ain't for me. Like mm -hmm. I am all done with this company for the rest of my life. It could do fabulously well. It could do terribly. I don't know. I don't care. It's just not uh, for me. The ones that sing to me in some way that capture my attention mm -hmm. uh, in, in some way, typically because they meet the vast majority of the criteria, or I think the upside potential uh, could be enormous. Those go onto my watch list for potential uh, buys. The way that I buy or choose what to, to buy on any given uh, a month is I when I have fresh capital to, to invest, I look over my uh, portfolio and I ask myself basically uh, three things. Uh, what are the highest quality businesses that are on there? What companies have the highest long-term growth potential? And what companies are trading at the most attractive value valuations? And whatever companies kind of bubble to the top of those three things, quality, potential, and valuation, I try and add to my portfolio. So you have this 3% rule. I mean, is it as straightforward as 3% per position or am I thinking about this too simply? So this is a, a loose framework that I, that I came, came up with because uh, again, I've made mistakes uh, on this previously. When I, if you look at my portfolio today, I own about 70-ish stocks uh, somewhere around there. And you would think that, oh, that's way too diversified. You'll never outperform the market with, with that many. Uh, but if you look at my, say, top 20, my top 20 positions are somewhere around 60 or 70% uh, of mm. my portfolio. So I am relatively concentrated into my uh, top, top ideas. One mistake that I've made previously is I've personally become way too bullish on any one company, and I tried mm -hmm. to force that company into being my, my, my top position. Uh, the company I, I, I made this mistake on was a company called Kinder Morgan, uh, which is a pipeline uh, operator. And again, it checked so many boxes in what I was looking for in investment. Uh, Founder-led management team, recurring revenue, uh, predictable, predictable demand. Uh, they had these take-or-pay contracts, so didn't didn't matter in theory, what the what energy prices does, this company uh, was getting paid. And I was like, I am so confident in this company's uh, future and growth potential that I'm going to make it a 5% plus position. And then on top of that, I layered in a bullish options strategy to basically increase my position uh, even more. Uh, spoiler, that company then went on to fall 70% even though I was 100% confident that the company's stock was going to uh, go up. And I had a heck of a time trying to unwind my ridiculously bullish options uh, position. Uh, so that was a very painful lesson. Now, at the same time, more than 10, roughly 10 years ago, I became an investor in Mercado Libre. Uh, and I took a small position uh, in that company. And if you've known anything about the history of Mercado Libre, it's been one of the best investments you could have made over the last 10 years. And without me doing much work, it just grew and grew and grew into one of my largest uh, positions. So just seeing that in action taught me, 
I don't always get what companies are going to do well, uh, right, but the market share does. So because of that, I've set a cap for myself to say whenever a company becomes 3% of my portfolio or more, I stop adding to it. Full stop. I will stop adding to it. From there, it's up to the company to earn a higher percentage return, percentage of my portfolio. Now, I'm not going to sell a stock that goes up. Uh, in fact, I try and do the opposite. I try and sell stocks that have gone down and I buy more of the ones that go up. But by doing so, it prevents me from making that catastrophic mistake again of being 100% certain of a company's future and being wrong. Now, How do you, you think this real violated that rule? Uh, not since I created it, but I only created it a couple of years ago. Uh, I was just curious what happened with like Kinder Morgan. And like, so I, I have, you know, some big positions that I fall in love with, right? Uh, share care one, you know, currently that I'm looking for. And, and obviously it's the SPAC. So there is, you know, that, that fear of dropping at any time. There's a lot of shorts on those. So like, at what point do you kind of, do you just pull the thread and, and you're done with Kinder Morgan? Or since you believed in it so much, or do you just wait it out and time, you know, eventually wins for you? Yeah, that was a wonderful learning lesson for me. Boy, was it painful. And it was the biggest yeah. dollar loss I've taken so far. Uh, but I learned a lot from, from owning that, uh, that, that loser. Uh, owning Kinder Morgan really taught me something, a valuable, valuable lesson, which is don't buy companies that are reliant on an outside force, namely commodity prices, for their success. And as a reminder, mm -hmm. I didn't think this company was reliant on an outside uh, force for success. One of the reasons I liked it is because these contracts, in theory, protected it from changes in commodity prices. What I got wrong was, well, yes, Kinder Morgan is protected, but you know who's not? It's customers. Mm -hmm. Those customers, when oil prices collapse, their revenue shrinks and they have a hard time paying their bills. So it doesn't matter that those contracts are in place if the person on the other side of the contract can't fulfill their obligation. So that is something that, that I got wrong. And when I learned that dynamic, I said, well, I have no ability to predict energy prices uh, in right. the long term. Therefore, I have no ability to predict which direction Kinder Morgan's going to go. Therefore, with so many other high quality businesses out there, why would I bother with this one? Mm. So switching gears a little bit, um, talking about people of influence throughout your investing career and who've made you the investor you are. Uh, maybe they've also too contributed to this mission statement you have, which I maybe even like you to elaborate on of spreading financial wellness. Who are three investing role models that have really instilled in you uh, your priorities in investing and how you invest? I have learned from dozens of, of investors, if not hundreds at this point. So it's hard to boil it down to three, uh, but I will give a shout out to, to three people that I would say have had a bigger influence on my investing style uh, more so than any others. Uh, number one would be uh, David Gardner, uh, who is the co-founder of, of The Motley Fool. Uh, he has been investing with a rule breaker uh, mindset for basically 20 years. And when I first learned about his investing style, I said, this guy's nuts. Like he is recommending stocks that have already gone up hundreds of a percent are trading at a hundred times price to earnings ratio. Like he's going to crash and burn. And only by observing him and being proven that I'm wrong, he's right again and again and again, have I really flipped to believing in his style. And his style is find excellent companies, buy excellent companies, sell mediocrity. And if you, valuation for him is the 20th thing he cares about. For me, when I first started, it was the first thing uh, that I cared about. And I just learned if you, if the lens you look through when you're investing is valuation first, you're never going to own the next Amazon. You're never going to own the next Mercado Libre. You're never going to own the next Tesla. Um, so he had a huge influence on my investing uh, style and philosophy. Number two would be a guy named Jeff Fisher, uh, again, um, a Motley Fool um, employee. Uh, he is a fabulous uh, investor, that, but that uh, I would say his style is high quality compounding machines combined with like GARP, G-A-R-P, growth at a reasonable price. So he taught me that you can be super demanding of, of, of your investments and you can get it. You can say, I want high growth high margins, high returns on capital, free cash flow, perfect balance sheet, uh, founder-led management team. I want tons of optionality. Uh, you can say, I want everything. Boy, does that limit the universe of companies that pass your criteria, mm -hmm. but they're out there. 
they, you can be demanding of everything. And his style is just demand everything and only let those companies into your portfolio. Uh, the third and final will be a guy named Tom Angle. Uh, he was, uh, again, I found him on the Motley Fools discussion boards. He has been, in, he has been uh, living off his portfolio now for uh, 30 years. Um, he retired in the, in the 1980s, uh, and he was an individual stock picker way back when, when getting information was insanely hard and right. buying and selling stocks was insanely uh, hard. Uh, but he taught me, um, uh, he taught me a lot about his, his valuation framework. So he tries to find companies that he think can grow for decades. And then he strategically buys those companies again and again and again at better and better valuations. So he's, he's not, he's value, he's more valuation focused than someone like David Gardner, but he's first focused on find awesome companies, then strategically buy that company again and again and again by watching it and paying attention to the valuation over time. Your, um, your session on Motley Fool with him was phenomenal around the trade desk and just his process and how he goes over uh, stocks and, and how he even just said, he's like, I can see the trade desk, you know, be paying a dividend soon. You know, I can see that it, I have no problem buying the trade desk, you know, larger market cap, but better valuation. And he, he walks you through that in, in the conversation and uh, learned a lot from both of you on that, that uh, it doesn't necessarily the market cap. You want to look at that price to sales or that, that PE, uh, are you getting in at a better value? Yeah, that's a fantastic lesson. He's one of the most common voices I've ever come across when markets are going to hell. Like when markets are falling straight down, he is filled with glee and excitement. So he is a great <laughs> counterbalance if you ever like, uh, I don't want to open my portfolio brokerage statement, but I'll just go and ask what Tom's thinking. Quick question on that. So uh, in terms of your like cash position for those instances, if the market's crashing, right? Do you, do you always hold a uh, you know, 3% cash, or do you have the, a larger cash position for that then? So I hold two positions of cash and I'm going to keep them distinct and separate. Uh, first, I'm a big fan of emergency funds. So I have a cash position just sitting in a checking or savings account earning zero uh, because that's right. what they, they pay <laughs> nowadays. But that is separate and distinct from the cash that I keep in my portfolio. So I don't consider that money investable. That is just right. in case something happens catastrophic in life, it's there to provide that. Uh, my Of the cash that I keep in my portfolio, it roughly fluctuates between half a percent and 5%, depending on what, what, uh, what I'm seeing in the market. Uh, sometimes it seems like it's raining gold, like it was in March of, uh, of 2020 when prices were, were collapsing. Uh, mm -hmm. Other times, like now when valuations are high and everything stretched, there are still great, plenty of great uh, stocks to buy, but I'm not like foaming at the mouth today to mm -hmm. get anything uh, into my portfolio. So it does fluctuate a little bit. I know some people that say I keep a when, when prices are high, I keep a 30% cash position. I know other investors that say I'm always fully invested, always. And I, cause I, the market goes up and, and that's my, that's my style. I think there's merits to both. And you can also mm -hmm. make the argument to me, holding any cash is akin to market timing, uh, which I know that I suck at. Uh, but uh, that's roughly what, uh, what I'm comfortable with. And, and just like uh, you know, we've mostly been focused kind of on individual stocks, your investing style, but how much do you look at like the macros? We had Jem uh, Carson on, uh, I think it was last week or the week before. Uh, he's really focused on the macros and in, the massive flows. Like, are you looking at, you know, outside events? And, and if so, I'm assuming you do to some capacity, but like, how much do you look at stuff coming down the pipeline, like tapering they've been mentioning recently? Zero. I pay zero. I pay zero attention to the, the macro environment uh, because I don't think I have any ability to predict it, and I don't trust mm -hmm. anybody that I, 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 I frankly don't trust anybody that makes market calls about macro events. Anybody that thinks they understand what's happening in the macro is dramatically underestimating the complexity that takes into account uh, the macro. Uh, and it's mm -hmm. easy to spin up a narrative based on what the Fed's doing or what fund flows are doing, but I've seen so many times people make calls based on because of A, B, C, D, next right. coming is D, E, F, and it makes complete sense. And then the opposite happens. Right. Fate loves irony, as Tony would say. Yeah. Quick question. So we, you know, we're, we're interviewing you right now, but you also have your own podcast and you've done great interviews in the past. Like of all the CEOs, is there one that kind of sticks out to you is one of the most interesting conversations you've had? 
I don't do a ton of CEO uh, interviews. I have done uh, a couple dozen. Um, so there are some great people out there that do wonderful uh, CEO uh, interviews. But one that sticks out to me is a guy named uh, Bill Doyle, who is mm -hmm. the executive chairman of a company called Novacure. You guys ever heard yep. of them? Yeah. Okay. Shareholder. <laughs> okay. So I'm, I uh, had the good fortune of interviewing Bill um, in like 2017 or, or something like that, because I found the company's technology to be fascinating and really hard to wrap your head around. And it mm -hmm. sounded like magic slash voodoo <laughs> uh, when you get into it. Uh, the, the, the gist is uh, they make a, a, a cap you put on your head and it fights cancer. Sounds again like magic. <laughs> it sounds like it sounds like magic. Like no way is this legit or anything like that. Uh, but they actually have clinical data uh, to prove that it uh, that it helps to fight uh, brain cancer. Uh, but after sitting down with him, really understanding uh, the technology, digging more into the company, uh, that is a company that uh, I have been bullish on for like four uh, plus years now. But after that interview, I was really like, I think this could yeah. be the the real the real deal. And I still think that company has an incredibly bright future ahead of it. Mm -hmm. I would agree. It's even now priced at a good point to add if you haven't got to that 3%. Uh, I've written several papers on him and uh, they're augmenting cancer, right? They're not trying to say, hey, we have the cure uh, and their pipeline is super robust with all the different things they're trying to do with their tumor treating fields uh, for other kinds of cancers coming up. So That's so my favorite thing about the company is it's, it's non-rival. It's non with other treatments. It's not, it's not something that is in lieu of surgery or in lieu of chemotherapy. It's an additive to those, to those things. Yes, very much so. And I don't, I think everyone thought it was like voodoo when it came to market because there's so many people that doubted that company that it is again. <laughs> work. Um, and they've also been mindful too. When you look at a company that is trying to improve their products and a customer experience, they had these massive backpacks that you'd have to wear with the cap to uh, use the device. And now they've shrunken it down to where it's so minimal to carry around as an experience of quality of life while, while dealing with serious cancer. Mm -hmm. Innovation is alive and well there for sure. Very much so. So uh, coming kind of to our close here on just your investing story and what you've done at Motley Fool and your mission. I just love it to spread financial wellness. Boom. That's it, right? Like <laughs> I know when I watch you and Brian go over mission statements, people like to have these long wordy, you know, it's straight to the point. I just like to know what inspired you to, I mean, you tweet all the time and I don't know how you do like, that was one thing I was like, how does he do his full-time job? Twitter has kids, a wife, how does he, you know, because it, it definitely takes a toll to really put good quality content out there. Um, but you make sure to always continue to put out stuff to help people to learn how to invest. So, you know, how do you do it? And just like what came to that point where it said, you know what, this is my mission. This is what I feel called to do. So I think it's very noble. Uh, well, thank you. Um, well, like many people listening, I did not I didn't know what I wanted to do when I grew up. Um, until probably 10 years ago. Uh, like, I think that you, I had no idea what I wanted to do when I graduated college. I chose business because it seemed reasonable and it seemed like uh, flexible, um, but I didn't have any grand vision in mind for teaching people about money. I just kind of discovered that uh, about myself because again, when I learned about financial independence, when I learned about investing, I was immediately taken by it. And it still kind of floors me to this day. Like, why do like only 1% of the population care about investing? Like this is a way that ordinary people can become millionaires, like in not that long of a time, like 10 or 20 years, like normal people can become millionaires. That doesn't like appeal to everybody. <laughs> like that's, doesn't that seem crazy? Um, it's 1%. That's crazy. I, that's, we, we live in such a bubble. Like I, I think everyone invests. Well, how, I mean, even even Fintwit. Fintwit's a wonderful, wonderful uh, place. But there are hundreds of million people, hundreds of millions yeah. of people on on Twitter. Uh, what are the biggest Fintwin accounts have like one million followers? Yeah. So like 03 percent of the population. Um, so I, I just know from my own life. Like for my own life, if ever I find somebody talking about the stocks, I'm like, oh, you're a weirdo too. Awesome. Uh, let's be friends. Um, so true. So true. So 
just, just interacting with people. Uh, most people don't care about money. Most people don't care about investing, um, even though it aspect, even though it affects every part of their life. And I've learned that this is my passion. This is what I'm into. This is what I like thinking about. This is what I like talking about. And I love teaching other people about how to do their money right, because it's something that mm. none of us are taught. I mean, again, I wasn't taught anything that I know. I just discovered it because I became uh, interested in it. But I know that money is money and money and health are like the two areas of life that uh, it doesn't matter whether you care about them or not. They're going to impact they're going to have an outsized impact on the quality of, of your life. So um, I love teaching other people how to do their, their money and uh, invest uh, right, um, because that's just essentially what I was put on earth to do. I'm convinced of that. You should be a financial advisor. <laughs> yeah, I'm not interested in managing other people's money. Then that gets into the managing their emotions, and I have zero interest in that. I'm happy to teach them how to do it themselves, but I don't want to do right. it for people. Well, Brian, thank you so much for joining us here at Pounding the Table. And you have your YouTube channel, you have a website or anything people should go to to check out and learn more? Yeah, the best way to connect with me is on Twitter, um, at Brian Feraldi. If you're interested in my uh, checklist that I uh, talked about for investments uh, every week, uh, me and my co-host, Brian Stoffel take a, a random company uh, that we've never heard of, and we go start to finish taking it through uh, our checklist, and we show you in real time how we research it and do and do everything. So that's uh, Brian Feraldi on YouTube. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, man. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having awesome. me, guys. Thanks, Brian. Awesome. Brian's incredible, man. Like he, he's just yeah. so insightful. He seems so focused. I've never seen anyone so like focused and just like genuinely love, except for Dom, maybe. Dom was right out there. It's at a perfect the top. Exactly. Yeah. It was just so funny. He's like, you're my older brother. And uh, Brian was like, okay, <laughs> sure. <laughs> but anyways, yeah. So just real quick, as we wrap things up, like what, what do we keep an eye out for? Obviously, we talked about, you know, the quad witching that's happening. We talk about the Fed now. They're going to be selling their stock. There's so much going on, obviously, always, as, as we always say. But in mm -hmm. this next week, like, how do you, like, really handle it? If you're looking at your own portfolio, like, obviously, everyone's individually has different stocks, different amount of money. So you can't give that broad sense necessarily. But is there anything like overarching you would just tell people? I know you mentioned like get out of margin if you can right now, but anything else to kind of keep an eye out here for, for next week? Yeah, I mean, obviously this quad witching into the end of the quarter, it's going to be really interesting because we have so many catalysts coming up soon. We have like infrastructure, we have, um, you know, COVID, different variants, like all these different things that are happening. You've got the Fed possibly tapering and like depending on how they're going to taper and at what pace. So, I mean, they're changing it back and forth every once in a while, which is uncertainty and the market doesn't like uncertainty. And we're literally so high right now on the S&P compared to like where we were. So my whole thing right now is just make sure that you are in a position where like, if we do get a 10 or 20% correction, you're fine. And so usually, you know, I, I like to be in those heads of the table, the SEs, the squares, because percentage wise, they will go down more than the indices most of the time, like unless it's a rotation out of FANG into growth. But I don't think, like, I think that they've now become pretty much FANG themselves. So they'll move like synonymously in my opinion. Um, but I do wanna just let everyone know that this market is gonna be, I think tumultuous in the next six months. I don't know if it's gonna be higher, lower, whatever. I really, I don't know. It's an ambiguous thing because there are so many factors, but I usually like to go with the zig when they zag. It doesn't seem like it's a zig when they zag situation. Sometimes the easiest thing is just do what's most simple. And if the Fed guys are selling these stocks, like they could have done it at any point in the last year or two years. So, I mean, you know, it's it's fun to zig when they zag, but just don't cross yourself. Um, and with that being said, Pounders, we'll be back next week for another episode.